0: bad news first, this place houses a security system that rivals most nuclear missile silos. First, we have to get within the casino cages, which anybody will tell you takes more than a smile. Next, through these doors, each of which requires a different six-digit code changed every 12 hours. Past those lies the elevator. This is where it gets tricky. The elevator won't move without authorized fingerprint identification. Which we can't fake. And vocal confirmation from both the security system within the Bellagio, ...and the vault below. Which we won't get. Furthermore, the elevator shaft is rigged with motion detectors. Meaning if we were to manually override the lift, the shaft's exit would lock down automatically and we'd be trapped. Now once we get down the shaft, though, then it's a piece of cake. Just two more guards with Uzis and the most elaborate vault door ever conceived by man.
1: And you're listening to George Clooney and the boys plotting their caper. And that's Ocean's Eleven, the remake of the great, well... Rat Pack movie in the 50s. And by the way, Americans love movies about heists. The Italian Job, Goldfinger, the best James Bond movie about a big heist. And, of course, the scenes in Goodfellas about that epic Lathanza heist in JFK and what happened after. It really anchors the entire movie. And, well, we're talking about stolen things here in this segment And that brings us to Nate Scott, who's written for USA Today, Fox News. He's at SB Nation now. But this is his own story and a friend's story about a stolen wallet.
2: This is a story about one of my best friends, Riley Flaherty. Riley recently lost his wallet. It's a bummer, but it happens. He was at a Wilco concert at King's Theater in Brooklyn, and after the show, he took an Uber back home to Manhattan. And as soon as he got home, he realized he didn't have his wallet. Riley had a trip the next morning. He really wanted the thing. So he had the driver take him all the way back. He searched the theater, but nothing. Now it's 3 in the morning and Riley, dejected, heads back to Manhattan. He has some cash lying around so he's able to go on the trip, but his wallet's gone. And so he does what you do when you lose a wallet. He cancels his credit cards, he actually was waiting on a new driver's license, so he got one of those and he bought a new wallet. End of story. Or so you'd think. Because after that, a miracle happened. Well, a sort of miracle. A very New York miracle. Two weeks after he lost his wallet, Riley received a plain white envelope in the mail. His name was written in shaky handwriting on it. And inside was his license, his credit cards, and a note. The note read, Dear Riley Flaherty, I found your wallet. And your driver's license had your address. So here's your credit cards and other important stuff. I kept the cash because I needed weed The metro card because, well, the fare's two seventy five now And the wallet because it's kind of cool Enjoy the rest of your day Toodles Anonymous I've never been so conflicted about a nice gesture Riley told me The cash, gone The wallet, gone The metro card, gone But two weeks later, returned in a plain white envelope, a driver's license, and his credit cards. I had already gone to get a new license and had already gotten all my cards replaced, said Riley. So basically, it was useless to me. He did have this story, though, (laughs) and no one can take that away from him.
1: (laughs) And that's so true. And thank you, Nate. And thank you, Riley, for sharing that sort of humiliating story. It's happened to us all. And uh, I don't tell a lot of stories about myself, but I I had something stolen. By the way, we'd love to hear the things from you that got stolen, the most precious things, the stupidest things. But for me, it was a car. It was my first car. And it wasn't just any car. It was a car I'd wanted ever since I'd seen Steve McQueen fire up the Mustang Fastback, the 1968 Mustang Fastback, in the greatest at that time car chase ever seen in movie history. And again, the movie was Bullet. And check it out. It's still, to this day, as good a car chase as you can see and as gripping. And it was a GT 2 Plus 2, the one in the movie, and he was chasing a Dodge Charger through the streets of San Francisco, uphills, downhills. It was just fantastic. And McQueen, of course, drove his own car. Uh, McQueen loved speed and ultimately loved racing cars. And so what did I do? Well, like lots of kids, we saw that movie, Great Product Placement by Ford, if it was. And I wanted that car, and so I saved for it, and I got parts for it, and it was many years later, um, almost two decades later, that I was trying to assemble my own version of that bullet car. And not, well, not exactly like it. I couldn't afford it, but something close. And it had the V8, the 289 cubic inch V8. It had the fancy spoked wheels, It had the pony interior. It even had factory air conditioning, which was a drag and a real pain to get. Well, I took that old Mustang Fastback down to Georgetown from New Jersey. And Georgetown is in Washington, D.C. My buddies were there, and I wanted to show off the new car. It was finally ready to go. A little road trip down the New Jersey Turnpike, the Delaware Turnpike, straight around 495 around the Capitol. Right down to M Street in front of Mr. Smith's. It was a rainy night. It was November. And my friends were in the front. I could see them in the front of the bar. So I just left that car running. And I went inside, and it was no more than a minute. And I came out, and that old car was gone. Long gone. And I cried. I mean, I cried. And then I screamed. And then I called the cops. And let's just say Washington, D.C. at the time. A call for 1968 Mustang Fastback redone. Well, that was a laugher when I told those guys what I'd done. And then the problem, well, telling my dad. And, well, you couldn't lie to my dad. He was one of those old, well, sort of military types who you couldn't lie to. And I finally just told him what had happened. And uh, he said, good luck with uh, your transportation for the next couple of years. And that was it. I walked a lot, and I learned a lesson. Don't leave a car running with the keys in it on a crowded city street. (laughs) Pretty dumb, huh? My theft story, Nate Scott's story, here on Our American Stories. And you can go to our American network. To hear all that we do, ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. American stories. And now we bring you a story from Joshua Texador. You can listen to his entire story at our website, ouramericanstories.com. It's a great one about overcoming hardship and taking responsibility for your life. Today, we bring you a piece of his story that begins after Josh decided to own up on an alcohol dependency, move to Nashville, get married, and take his own life into his own hands. <music>
3: I got to Nashville on a Sunday, and I had a job interview that Wednesday It was working that following Monday. And then I've bas- basically, you know, busted my ass ever since that day. And that was, what we're talking, uh, almost three years ago. So I interviewed for FedEx, uh, United Postal Service, the Unarmed Factory, and, oh, UPS. I definitely went after the postal service because they're always hiring. So I knew I could get a job as soon as I got there from going to the post office. And I oh my, I hated it, hated it, hated it, hated it, hated it. I hated it to the point where I said, I, I'm going to make enough money. I will never, ever have to do this ever again. Being a package handler at a post office distribution center sucks. It is the worst job ever. And then, you know, yes, I was making $16 an hour. When I tell you you're going to... You're going to work for every single penny. You're going to earn every single penny from working um, as a package handler. And I was on one of the harder lines because they just see me. Like I'm not a small guy. So I was on one of the, the toughest lines at the, at the job site. So I was in charge of three and a half trucks. You got people who are responsible for like two trucks. I have three and a half trucks. And when our belt got crazy, cause there's like a, our belt, there was a top and a bottom. So you have like um, local packages and you have like, like a wet reel. I don't know, well, non-local packages, whatever. So when our local packages would fill up, I would have to stop loading my truck, go down on the bottom belt and help let them load that part just for me to go back to the top of the belt and start loading my trucks again. because the volume was getting so crazy, we had, instead of going in at three in the morning, we were going in at two o'clock in the morning. So from two o'clock in the morning to like eight o'clock, I'm picking up boxes, no bathroom break, picking up boxes. And I'm just like, I will never, ever, 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 ever do this again. And it wasn't so much that you couldn't go to the bathroom. I just knew if I went to the bathroom and came back, I was gonna have to play catch up. So I would purposely purposely just not go. But you know, go, I was like, I-, I can't do this anymore. And then I tried to get a manager job at Dunkin' Donuts. Terrible. I was there for two days. I said, I'm good, I'm good. I'm not doing this anymore. So the fu- it's funny, I was in the post office and I, was do- and I was doing Dunkin' Donuts at the same time for those two days. So when I left on the second day, the very next day, I went to um, FedEx. There's a security company there. It's called Allied Universal. So I started talking to them. I said, hey man, like, it's how's that job? And they're like, yeah, it's good. You know, it's not bad. And I'm looking at them and they're getting paid, and they're not really doing much of anything. So I said, man, I should just go out and <laughs> I should go and, and do that. And that day I applied for Ally Universal. The hiring process was great. I well, for me it was great. I think it's hysterical. Um <laughs> the day. <laughs> the day of my interview so in the paperwork you know uh, in the paperwork in the application it says you know you need to be clean shaven and you know you need to look presentable so I went out got a haircut I had a full beard cut the whole beard off I was clean shaven, and you know in my mind it's an interview so I have uh you know I got a button-up shirt a tie I got khakis and shoes on I go to the building, I get to the building and I'm like, and I'm walking past the room that I'm supposed to go to, but in the room there's like a bunch of people. So I'm like, I I was like, man, I'm in the wrong place. So a lady who's sitting at a desk, she's like, hey, what are you looking for? I'm like, I'm here to apply for, I'm here for the Ally interview. (laughs) And she's like, oh, you're in the right place. Man, when I tell you I'm the only person dressed up, I'm the only person dressed up in the entire room. I'm laughing to myself. I'm like, yo, <laughs> they cannot be serious right now. I'm like, who shows up like this for a job interview? I'm the only person dressed up. They had one girl in there with slippers. Slippers. She had slippers on and uh, SpongeBob pajama pants for a job interview. I'm like, this girl's crazy. You know, and I, you know, I get high like that day. And I guess from the way I presented myself and how I did my interview. Um, I got a really good job site, and I end up getting, my job site was the Country Music Hall of Fame. It was, I don't want to say it was a, it was a learning curve. It was, it was like when I first got there, so remember, this is all new to me. This is, I think this is like the second or third month that I'm in Nashville, so I don't even know anybody, and um... (laughs) <laughs> I was gonna quit. I was gonna quit working um, security. And it wasn't so much that I didn't like the Country Music Hall of Fame. Um, the leadership at the Country Music Hall of Fame for security, I was like, man, this this is not good. Like it just seemed like people were just doing whatever they wanted. I was like, I, I don't know if I'm gonna make it here. But I remember, I'm determined and pretty much like uh, they hired me as part-time there, but I ate up so many hours from people not showing up. And plus they have events. So I was I was getting like 40 hours just off events and covering other people's shifts. And um, they end up after three weeks of me really, you know, working hard. I got offered a supervisor position there and I, and I took it. And I became the first shift supervisor. And you know, I definitely made some changes that weren't working because I like I like to do what works. I mean, people can say, "Hey, you know, we've done this forever." I'm like, "Yeah," but you know, what worked 10 years ago is not going to work today. I mean, sometimes what happened last year is not going to work today. So you know, I, you have to adapt to what's going on. So I made some changes uh, myself and the actual uh, site ma- uh, supervisor. You know, we made some real strong changes, and you know, we were working on just building a better culture and a better relationship from a security standpoint with the client. The client would be the Country Music Hall of Fame. And I 100% believe that we did that. And I end up, you know, becoming the actual site supervisor of the entire thing. And, you know, uh, running a staff of over uh, over 30 people, handling time sheets, uh, payroll, you know, handling all the scheduling. I think from my leadership there and from you know, my hard work there. I've definitely built better relationships with the people at Allied Universal Security as well as the Country Music Hall of Fame. And like I said, reputation is everything. Respect is everything. And I think I've earned my respect with people. And I think my reputation is very is is long standing with the people um, that I've had to work with through my experience there. I mean, more than anything, your work ethic has to—it has to shine through. I—I I mean, I myself, I was a site supervisor, and I mean, I was doing 60, 70 hours a week, like, steady. And I'm—and I'm doing that, but I'm also making sure that the my—I'm making sure that my other supervisors are taken care of. I'm making sure like the new people are getting their hours. Like, I didn't just take hours because I could just take all the hours. I will literally let everybody eat, and then I will pick up the crumbs but everybody was getting a piece. So everybody's happy, everybody's making money, everybody's comfortable. We changed the training at the Hall of Fame where it was more hands-on rather than how it was before. It's kind of like, you know, just figure it out, you know? And it was, I mean, it was a a really, really great experience for me to be there. And like, when I was a site supervisor, anybody who came in who didn't have a car, I made sure, I made sure. Like, we got a lot of young people like you know people fresh out of high school or people in college who didn't have cars all those people who came who were like young people who didn't have cars I made sure they all got cars and that was like a big thing for me was at least helping young people you know get their accomplishments and at least pushing them along rather than saying yeah you work here whatever you know so I actually take pride in that
1: And you've been listening to Josh Texador, and we were all wondering what would happen at Josh, because my goodness, he had grown up right before our eyes in the first story. And my goodness, we'll have to make a trip up to the Country Music Hall of Fame. He can give us a tour, and and we can do some stories about some of the great storytellers in American history, because there are a few better than the ones who adorn those walls. Josh Texador's story, here on Our American Story. continue with our American stories, and this next story comes to us from a regular contributor, John Elfner, who's taught U.S. history for over 20 years at Homewood Flossmoor High School in the south suburbs of Chicago. Here's John with a great history story.
4: I teach U.S. history to high school students, and on the first day of class, just after they've arrived, I tell them the story of something called the Freedom Train. It's the very first thing my students hear me talk about, and it's such a great story, it comes with its own
5: soundtrack. Speaking of trains, I think it'd be a good idea for the Rhythm Ayers and Mr. Trotter to join me in a song about
0: the most important choo-choo, the Freedom Train.
4: This song by Bing Crosby was written to celebrate a very specific train that over 3.5 million Americans boarded between 1947 and 1949. It was called the Freedom Train. The Freedom Train was a museum on rails. It was an actual train. Each car contained original documents that represented American freedom, and the train traveled from city to city for over two years. It would pull into a station and settle on a sidetrack. The local townspeople would board the train to witness freedom documents. Original copies of the Declaration of Independence, the Bill of Rights, the Emancipation Proclamation, along with many others, were featured. Dr. Stuart J. Little has written extensively about the Freedom Train, and I'm going to let him pick up the story.
6: The Freedom Train was a social, cultural, political event immediately on the heels of the end of the Second World War. And it began as an idea for some staff people who worked for the Department of Justice, and they just so happened to be across the street from the National Archives. And they walked across the street one day, I think on their lunch hour. They got together with the Attorney General's office, with the National Archives people, and said, let's see what we can do to put something together. So by the early... 1947, they created this organization called the American Heritage Foundation.
4: And they designed a very aggressive schedule to bring this train to all parts of the country.
6: They started in September of 1947, went around the country for 413 days, went to 322 cities. And by their count, they had over 3 million people that visited the train every time it stopped. And that averaged out to, I think, about 9000 people a day.
4: The Freedom Train had a mission to bolster American identity. Now remember, we were barely out of World War II, and the nation had been so unified with a purpose that was literally life and death during that war. And now the war was over. We were entering our next great conflict, the Cold War, and the organizers of the Freedom Train recognized the need to encourage a very specific idea of what it means to be an American outside of wartime. And their organizing principle was freedom. Here again is Dr.
6: Little. We've defeated the Nazis and the Japanese. There's a great consensus in America for what we mean. And we can pull these documents together and reflect that, that we're on the, the right path. We've defeated everybody. We're literally at the rise of American power after World War II. And so there's this great sense of accomplishment and moving forward
4: townspeople excitedly rushed in droves to see the Freedom Train. But you don't have to take my word for it. I met two women who boarded the Freedom Train in 1947. I would have been 12 or 13. That's Clarice Fleet, and she boarded the train in Minot, North Dakota.
7: I was in grade school at that time.
4: And that's Carol Jones. She got on the train in Green Bay, Wisconsin in 1948.
7: And it was announced all over the media.
1: From coast to coast, the Freedom Train thrilled millions of Americans with its message of liberty. Among the documents of greatest interest, the first 10 amendments to the Constitution are Bill of Rights and Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, a Freedom Train, bearing these guarantees of liberty, symbolize the forts of America.
4: The arrival of the Freedom Train, especially in small towns like Minot, North Dakota and Green Bay, Wisconsin, thrilled the people from these towns. You can hear it in Carol Jones's voice as she talks about learning the Freedom Train was coming.
7: We were very excited to know that the Freedom Train was coming to Green Bay. Our school was going to march in in line and get dressed up, and we were going to go see the Freedom Train. We were thoroughly excited that this train was coming to Green Bay.
4: It was fascinating listening to these two women tell the story of their visits to the Freedom Train. To this day, Carol and Clarice have never met or spoken to each other. Both women's recollections of their visit was nearly identical. Welcome to the Freedom Train.
7: We got our friends together and we all marched over. The whole town turned out just like they did for the state fair. We gathered at school, St. Patrick's Grade School. No so the nuns all had their habits on and everything and they escorted us in line. Step this way. The line that went forever. <laughs> and the train itself was in red, white and blue. It was a beautiful day. I mean, it was just lovely and we had we walked through and it was keep going, keep going. Oh, faster, <laughs> we please. couldn't daddle. And on each side and then you walked down down the middle of the aisle of the train. They divided us up because the train was so long. Stay with your group. And then on each side they had the documents that they were the real documents. The Constitution
8: is on your left.
7: It was so exciting to see the Declaration of Independence. They showed documents under under glass. glass.
8: Don't touch the glass.
7: You couldn't touch them, but you could look at them. And it went on all day. Open from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. This beautiful train. Very, very beautiful.
4: As passengers boarded the train, they were handed something called the Freedom Pledge. It was created by the American Heritage Organization, and by reading it, you can tell what they meant by freedom.
9: I will vote at all elections. I will serve on a jury when asked. I will respect and obey the laws. I will pay my taxes understandingly, if not cheerfully. I will work for
4: peace. Getting on the train and accepting the card with the Freedom Pledge was a version of entering into a contract with the designers of the Freedom Train, committing to their notion of what it means to be an American. Every person who boarded the train was even asked to sign a scroll, which was delivered to the National Archives when the train concluded its journey in 1949. The contract sent this message, our country provided freedom, and the passenger's obligation in the contract was to fulfill this pledge. And this pledge succeeded in setting a tone for the interior of the train. Newspapers reported it this way. Inside, one has the feeling he is in church. The only
9: light is the soft, fluorescent glow reflected from the lighted documents. Parents shush their children, and little schoolboys take off their caps without being told.
4: People speak in low, guarded tones used by tourists in ancient cathedrals. The Freedom Train had a mission to define, through documents, what it means to be an American and to get millions of people to sign on to that definition. Touring these documents from city to city, people like Clarice and Carol understood what the American Heritage Foundation had hoped that they would. Our nation is successful because of a past focused on freedom, designed by our noble ancestors who through their work created a strong and united nation. And that unity and strength of principle allowed us to defeat tyranny in World War II. The country was unified and the Freedom Train emphasized that unity.
7: Everybody was so appreciative to be able to see those things because to have it come to our our little hometown meant so much to everybody at that time. I don't know anybody in town that didn't go down there. All we knew is that something exciting was coming to town and that we were going to see the freedom train, the real freedom train, with real things that were all about Washington and Lincoln. We would have to see, for real, just the fact that you were looking at the actual documents that formulated our country. Everybody was, God bless America, and there was no controversy, and we were coming out of the war, and there was a lot of patriotism going on. We had yet to face what was happening as far as... Integration goes.
4: That may have been true in Green Bay, Wisconsin, but as the train scheduled stops in the South, city officials in Birmingham, Alabama announced that in their city, the Freedom Train would be segregated.
1: And if I didn't have my students' attention
4: up until this point, I have their attention now.
1: And when we come back, we'll continue with this remarkable story the Freedom Train. And by the way, what an idea to take a Freedom Pledge. I don't know if you've ever been to a a swearing-in ceremony for immigrants in this country who come here. But it's one of the most beautiful things you've ever heard, and I sometimes wonder if we all shouldn't have to do that as a pathway to voting and everything else. And by the way, look that pledge up. Just go up on uh, Google and, and type in Citizen Pledge. Maybe I'll read it at the end of the rest of this story. When we come back to Freedom Train, we're with John Elfner, a history teacher at homewood Flossmore High School, in the south suburbs of Chicago. More on this story, here on Our American Stories. Turn to our American stories and the story of the Freedom Train let's return to John Elfner for the rest of this story
4: the Freedom Train was a glorious success hosting 9,000 visitors a day traveling over 30,000 miles in two years and having over three million witnesses to our founding documents but when the train headed for Birmingham in 1947 the town announced it would segregate African-American and white visitors to the train How can something called the Freedom Train end up with such obvious contradictions to the basic notions of freedom? It's important to remember that the year the Freedom Train began in 1947, it was still seven years before the landmark Supreme Court case, Brown v. Board of Education, which declared segregation by race inherently unequal. But the Freedom Train organizers were ready for this. Here again is historian Stuart J. Little.
6: The American Heritage Foundation, they had a stated written policy that they would not allow segregated viewing of these documents when the train went through the South.
4: A portion of the Freedom Pledge even acknowledged this.
6: In thought,
9: expression, and action, I will avoid any group prejudice based on class, race, or religion.
4: Despite the efforts of the Freedom Train organizers, many Southern cities still tried to schedule segregated viewings of the train. At this point in the story, we meet a familiar opponent of civil rights who became much more prominent after the 1963 Birmingham movement. His name is Bull Connor, and he held the position of the Commissioner of Public Safety and was the head of the police in Birmingham, Alabama. Remember the images of the German Shepherds attacking African American teens, or the Birmingham Fire Department using fire hoses to break up protesters? They were acting on the orders of Bull Connor. But the Freedom Train was visiting Birmingham 16 years before that famous march. Connors' views on segregation in the Freedom Train won't surprise you. He sent a message to the organizers of the Freedom Train saying this.
7: Our segregation law is for the equal protection of the white and black races of the city and for the prevention of disorder in the city. We will fairly give equal opportunity to whites and blacks to enter the Freedom Train by alternatively allowing whites and blacks in each car of the train
4: can you hear how Connor is using the language of the separate but equal ruling of the Supreme Court? We will fairly give equal opportunity to whites and blacks. What he meant was African-Americans can board the train at separate times than whites would be boarding the train. The attempts to segregate the Freedom Train at stops like Birmingham, Alabama didn't go unnoticed by civil rights advocates. Langston Hughes, perhaps the most celebrated poet of the Harlem Renaissance, wrote a poem called The Freedom Train, And it was recorded by arguably the most famous and most political African-American figure in the 1940s, Paul Robeson.
1: Checking on the Freedom Train. I read in the papers about the Freedom Train. I heard on the radio about the Freedom Train. Atlanta, way across Georgia. Lord, Lord, Lord. Lord, way down in Dixie, the only trains I see... Got Jim
5: Crow coaches set aside for me.
1: I hope there's
5: no Jim Crow.
4: Researching this story, I found a ripped piece of paper in the Library of Congress's papers belonging to Rosa Parks. It was a scrap of typing paper that had faded to a parchment yellow. It was torn and only fragments of sentences were visible. The Library of Congress had cataloged it as Rosa Parks writing about the Freedom Train, but it wasn't that. It was Langston Hughes's poem. Mrs. Parks had heard it and typed it out for herself. But there's more. Mrs. Parks was aware that other cities like Birmingham had tried to segregate the lines for the Freedom Train. She decided that she would, in the words of Langston Hughes, check up on the Freedom Train when it arrived in Montgomery. Historian Dr. Jean Theo Harris is the author of a recent award-winning biography of Mrs. Parks called The Rebellious Life of Mrs. Rosa Parks. She picks up the story.
6: The Freedom Train is supposed to be integrated, um, and they're galled that the committee in Montgomery, it's an all-white committee, and she writes up a report from the Montgomery NAACP basically calling attention to this, and it's published in The Memphis World, which is a black newspaper.
4: Parks, who was at that time already working for the NAACP, saw the Freedom Train as an opportunity to advocate for civil rights.
6: In December of 1947, uh, she ultimately takes a group of black young people to see the Freedom Train. And it's, it's dangerous. It's her first experience with kind of hate calls.
4: The popular image of Rosa Parks is that of a seamstress who didn't want to give up her seat on the bus because she was simply tired. But the story of Rosa Parks is much more complex and layered, and she may have been directly inspired by the Langston Hughes poem. Listen to these lines. The Birmingham stations mark colored and
1: white. White folks left the colored right. They even got a segregated lane. Is that the way to get aboard the Freedom Train, I'm
4: going to check. I'm going to check up on the Freedom Train. Rosa Parks was checking up on the Freedom Train, just as Langston Hughes said you should. The train she boarded was not technically segregated, but it wasn't clear when she arrived that the community in Montgomery would allow her to integrate the train, or even the line for the train. When Rosa Parks checked up on the Freedom Train, it was still eight years before she would become a national figure when she refused to give up her seat on a Montgomery bus. So how did they do? Was the movement surrounding the Freedom Train a success? I'll let you decide, here's what happened. When word reached organizers of the Freedom Train that Southern cities were considering segregating the train, they sent advance men to all the cities to check up on any efforts to segregate the lines to the Freedom Train. Any cities that had such plans were told the Freedom Train would cancel its visits. Only Birmingham and Memphis, Tennessee continued to insist on segregated lines, and in those cities, the Freedom Train stops were canceled. The decision to stand up to the city organizers in Birmingham and Memphis was cheered nationally. The New York Times made the cancellation of the Birmingham stop a front-page story on Christmas Day of 1947. After the cancellations in Birmingham and Memphis, Walter White, the leader of the NAACP, publicly said this. For one of the very first times in history, the rest of the country had called the bluff of the reactionary South. I began this story by saying that on the first day of my history class, I tell my students the story of the Freedom Train. Why this story? I'm going to let Dr. Kevin Boyle, Northwestern University history professor and author of my favorite history book, Ark of Justice, help answer that question.
8: Most Americans know the story of the Civil Rights Movement. Or maybe a better way of putting it is they know a story of the Civil Rights Movement. Ask them when the Civil Rights Movement began, and they'll tell you it started on a Thursday night, a little after 5 p.m., on December 1st, 1955, when a woman, a 42-year-old woman they think was elderly, refused to give up her seat on a bus in Montgomery, Alabama. From that single act of defiance by Rosa Parks, they'll say, emerged a movement that swept across the South of the 1950s and 1960s ran through the hallways of Little Rock Central High School in 1957, it sat down at the lunch counters in Greensboro, North Carolina in 1960, rode the buses out of Anniston, Alabama in 1961, it came onto the campus of the University of Mississippi in 1962, it filled the streets of Birmingham with children in the spring of 1963, it dared to go into the Mississippi Delta In the summer of 64. It marched across the Edmund Pettus Bridge outside of Selma, Alabama in 1965 and it died on a motel balcony in Memphis, Tennessee in April of 1968. That's the story of civil rights as most Americans understand it. So what happens When you look at the African-American struggle that doesn't fit into that story, that doesn't fit between 1955 and 1965, when it doesn't fit into that triumphant trajectory, what happens to civil rights then? What
4: happens is a reconsideration of the story of the civil rights movement, a story
8: we thought we knew.
4: And when you widen the civil rights movement beyond the years of the traditional story, my students realize that Rosa Parks and scores of others like her were fighting for civil rights long before the Montgomery bus boycott. And when they realize that a story they thought they knew is more complex and requires more exploration, it forces them to dig more deeply into all eras of history. It also gives them a chance to consider what artifacts from each era could be used to represent what it means to be an American. There was a second Freedom Train that traveled through our country to celebrate America's Bicentennial in 1976. It featured many of the same documents from the original Freedom Train, but it also included dozens of documents that didn't exist at the time of the first Freedom Train, like a moon rock gathered by astronauts during the Apollo mission, John F. Kennedy's rocking chair from the White House, Hank Aaron's baseball cap, and dozens of other more recent artifacts. Seeing the difference between the two trains makes me wonder, what would a Freedom Train have looked like in 1830, 1865, 1920, or today? In the year 2026, our country will be celebrating the 250th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. I can't think of a better way to celebrate our Sester Centennial than for us to get on board a third Freedom Train. And what stories, speeches, people, portraits, and songs would you want to see on that Freedom Train to represent what it means to be an American? I hope somebody plans a Freedom Train, and if they do, let's get on board together. I guarantee you the lines will be long, but there'll be plenty of room for all of us on the
1: 21st Century Freedom Train. All aboard! The Freedom
5: Train
1: And you've been listening to John Elfner and the story of the Freedom Train and that second installment, particularly compelling, telling the story of segregation in America and giving the larger picture. We did a terrific piece on Rosa Parks and her life story, and it's clear that that was not the beginning of her trial, that for a long time before, Rosa Parks had been on the move, trying to change things in the South, and heck, There was a heck of a lot of segregation in the North, too. I'm a Jersey boy uh, by, by birth, and my goodness, almost all the neighborhoods were filled with white folks, and when black folks moved in, white folks left. There wasn't a law forcing them to, but they did it anyway. And we cover all the stories here on Our American Stories, the good ones, the bad ones, and everything in between. The Freedom Train, here's hoping we get one for 2026. I'd love to see what's on it. That story here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. And today we bring you a story from one of our listeners in the Twin Cities. We love telling you stories of redemption, and Paul Kotz wrote the book on it. Well, he wrote a book Something Happened Today, a collection of the unexpected. The book was initially conceived by Kotz's desire to leave something inspiring for his daughters to read. The title is a suggestion to look for a miracle every day, and is drawn from personal experience. Here's Paul.
9: Years ago, I was working at a center for the homeless in Kansas City. Each day, we would receive donations from local markets and donors to feed 120-plus people in a place called the Family House. On a beautiful, sunny Tuesday morning, a man yelled at me from across the street, Hey, you! It was my turn to wash windows at the Family Center. I would put the soapy water in the bucket, fill and rinse it out, and use a squeegee to make the windows glisten. I turned around and there was this guy waving at me from the dumpster in plain sight. He had a salt and pepper colored beard and he motioned for me to come over. I dropped my cleaning supplies and ventured across the street to see the man. Got the time, he asked. I gave him the time and he told me his name was Joe. Do you smoke? He asked. No. I thought back to my dad, who had an air of confidence when he puffed away, many times driving his Thunderbird, convertible top-down, and listening to his 50s and 60s music. In this case, Joe was smoking a Marlboro with deep puffs, exhaling through his nose with a purpose. His expression didn't change, but his wrinkles around the eyes exuded wear and tear as well as his ability to smile. I have to make sure I get my stuff out of here before they throw me away too. He laughed. I realized and fully understood what he was saying. Each Tuesday morning, early, the trash compactor would come and hoist the industrial steel dumpster into the air and empty the garbage and refuse from the past week. I thought about what we take for granted in our great country and how this type of life still exists. He went on to let me know a culinary tip too. He mentioned that he could not stand cauliflower. In addition to cleaning assignments at the shelter, we would venture to the downtown markets to catch some of the produce vendors throwing out strawberries, potatoes, onions, that dreaded cauliflower, and heads of lettuce with first signs of spoiling. A Christian brother named Louis explained to us as workers that 10%, that is, the top of the crate, may be spoiled, but if cleared away, 90% of it is beautiful fruits and vegetables. We waste a lot of food around here, he told me. Well, store owners and shopkeepers were not always fond of us intercepting the crates before they were tossed in the trash. But many let us know the best times to stop by to pick up the edible food before it made its way there. I noticed in the dumpster he had a rickety blanket, two small kid-sized chairs and a makeshift table. One week I watched him do it. The restaurant bar would throw empty bottles and trash and fill the dumpster most of the way. But Joe would time it perfectly, waiting for the trash truck to pick up the refuse and then he proceeded to put his chairs and table back in for another week's worth of living. Want to play some cards? He asked me. I was kind of mesmerized by this man who seemed to just go about his business of living the streets so effortlessly. But this was a home to him, a place of comfort, protection, and possible peril if he forgot to wake up on a Tuesday. Yeah. Once I had a close call, but people check on me to make sure I get out in time. He hopped back in, arranged the chairs and table, and then so did I. We played part of a game of cribbage with pegs of popcorn kernels. You want a banana? He asked me. He pulled out what seemed like a fresh fruit, unpeeled it, and we each had a half. Here is this guy who barely had a place to live, sharing what he had with me, his new card playing buddy. It was early. Most of my colleagues were still asleep that morning and I'm thinking to myself, why am I in a dumpster? I eventually returned to my window cleaning assignment. Some of you are thinking, I will never have lunch or coffee with me again and make sure I wash my hands. But for me, this was a moment of grace in my life, a wake-up call, an awakening to another world that I never knew nor previously wanted to see. I thought about what I would do if this were me and how I would cope. Would I be playing cribbage, possibly drinking to avoid the pain, or maybe dead because I didn't have the stamina or the resourcefulness of Joe? I will never forget that man's generosity, who offered his temporary home, part of his sustenance, a game to play, his creative adaptation of life, and his daily appreciation of the moment.
1: And you've been listening to Paul Cotts and what a terrific story about grace and about, well, learning to see what's unseen and to have grace, and to share experiences with people you might not ever think you'd have anything in common with or have anything to learn from. Paul is a listener in the Twin Cities on WCCO, and that's Minneapolis-St. Paul. And if you have stories like this, we'd love to hear them. And by the way, I love that he's written this book to inspire his daughters, because there's so little around to read to our kids that inspires them and they're yearning for it and they're desperate for it and we all are and that's what we try and do on our american stories paul kotz's story and in the N joe's story too here on our american stories American stories, and the next story is about a writer, well, whose name you know, but whose story you may not. Mark Twain was not quite 50 when he published The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn in February of 1885, and in doing so, changed American literature. Quote, all modern American literature comes from one book by Mark Twain called Huckleberry Finn, Ernest Hemingway famously declared in 1935. Quote, It's the best book we've had. All American writing comes from that. There was nothing before, and there has been nothing as good since. This is the story of a time before the world knew Samuel Clemens by his pen name, Mark Twain. The time he spent in the American West helped Clemens develop a distinctive Western voice and provided him with material that would make him America's first celebrity author. Here to tell the story of Samuel Clemens' life in the Old West is Roger McGrath, McGrath is the author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes, Violence on the Frontier, a U.S. Marine, and former history professor at UCLA. Dr. McGrath has appeared on numerous History Channel documentaries, and he's a regular contributor for us here at Our American Stories. Here's McGrath.
5: Most people know Sam Clemens as Mark Twain, the author of Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn. They have no idea that as a young man, he spent the 1860s in the mining camps of Nevada and California. And it was in those camps he wrote professionally for the first time. It was also in those camps that he learned from older writers a style of writing common to the frontier west. And adopted that style for his own. A book came out of his experiences on the frontier, which is little known, but may be his best work, roughing it. Sam Clemens is born in Florida, Missouri, in November 1835. He is the sixth of seven children, three of whom die in childhood. His parents are of Scotch-Irish, Cornish, and English descent. The family moves to Hannibal, Missouri, a port on the Mississippi, when Sam is four. There's regular river traffic in and out of the port, and there are pioneers passing through the town on their way west. From young age, Clemens understands there is a larger world outside of Hannibal. When Clemens is 11, his father, an attorney and judge, dies. Less than a year later, Clemens drops out of school and is apprenticed to a printer. Clemens soon becomes an accomplished typesetter, working long hours during the day and reading in a library at night. When he is 13, he watches one of his friends depart for California in the gold rush of 1849. Clemens later describes the scene. I still remember the departure of the cavalcade when it spurred westward. We were all there to see and to envy. And I can still see the proud little chap sailing by on a great horse. We were all on hand to gaze in envy when he returned two years later. In unimaginable glory, for he had traveled. None of us had ever been 40 miles from home, but he had crossed the continent had been in the gold mines, that fairyland of our imagination. We would have sold our souls to Satan for the privilege of trading places with him. Clemens continues working as a typesetter until 1857 when he meets Horace Bixby, a steamboat pilot on the Mississippi River. For a price, Bixby agrees to take on Clemens as an apprentice pilot or what's called a cub pilot. After training under Bixby for two years, Clemens receives his pilot's license and begins serving on the steamer A.B. Chambers. It's a prestigious job, and the pay is good. But in 1861, the Civil War erupts, closing most steamboat traffic on the Mississippi. At the same time, Sam Clemens gets his chance to go west, a dream since childhood. His older brother, Orion, is a practicing attorney and a vigorous supporter of Abraham Lincoln's campaign for president. Orion closes his law office and stumps throughout Missouri in behalf of Lincoln. When Lincoln becomes president... Orion is appointed secretary of the newly created territory of Nevada Orion has a problem though his months of campaigning for Lincoln have exhausted his personal savings Orion asks Sam to finance his trip to Nevada Sam agrees if Orion takes him along and gives him a job Orion reckons he will need a private secretary and Sam can be the secretary Sam pays $400 for the stagecoach fare for the two of them from St. Joseph Missouri to Carson City Nevada the cost is more than 15,000 in today's dollars the company that operates the line is the Central Overland California and Pikes Peak Express company the company is owned by William Russell Alexander Majors and William Waddell they become famous not only for their stagecoach service to California, but also for their creation of the Pony Express. On July 26, the Clemens Brothers climb aboard a Central Overland stagecoach and begin a 1,700-mile journey over the Great Plains, through the Rocky Mountains, and across the Great Basin to Carson City. Sam is dressed in a woolen shirt and pants and high-top boots. He carries a Smith and Wesson revolver, which he hasn't practiced much with, but he feels bully and is ready for his grand adventure. Sam and Orion are among the first to take a stagecoach over the central route. Surface begins only a week before their departure. The coaches used by the company are the famous concord which weigh nearly a ton and are pulled by six horse teams the concord gives its passengers a relatively smooth ride suspension is provided by two thick leather straps called thorough braces that run between the coach's axles and suspend the coach's body passengers experience a rolling motion and not the jolting ride of a wagon. A suitable run for a team of horses is 10 to 13 miles. Teams are then changed at what are called swing stations. Every fourth station is a home station, where not only are teams changed, but also drivers. For passengers such as Sam Clemens and his brother Orion, there is no turning in. The overland stage runs on an around-the-clock schedule to make the trip from St. Joseph to Sacramento in 20 days, an average speed of 10 miles per hour. Passengers get out to stretch their legs at each station and to eat at home stations, but other than that, they live on the stagecoach. Approaching a home station in Wyoming, Sam begins to hear stories about a division superintendent named Jack Slade. Sam's told that Slade has killed more than 20 men, not counting Indians. Slade had one old enemy, Jules Benny, tied to a post in a station corral. Slade had almost died from bullets he suffered when ambushed by Benny, so he was now going to kill Benny slowly. First, Slade cut off Benny's ears for souvenirs. Slade allowed Benny to suffer earless at the post for hours, and then Slade began taking target practice on his old enemy. One of Slade's bullets took off one of Benny's fingers. Another round tore flesh off Benny's leg, and a third bullet ripped flesh off Benny's arm. Slade kept firing until Benny begged to be put out of his misery. Slade then sent a bullet through Benny's head. Now, who do you suppose happens to be at the home station Sam Clemens is approaching? Yes, none other than Jack Slade. When the stagecoach reaches the station, Sam, his brother Orion, and the other passengers sit down to eat breakfast with, as Sam says, a half-savage, half-civilized company of armed and bearded mountaineers, ranchmen, and station employees. Sam winds up seated right next to Jack Slade himself. although Sam doesn't know it at first. Then someone calls Slade by name, and Sam almost collapses. Says Sam, never has youth stared and shivered as I did when I heard them call him Slade. Much to Sam's surprise, he finds Slade gentlemanly and pleasant. Nonetheless, Sam maintains a healthy fear. When the coffee is nearly gone and Slade is about to take the last cup, Slade notices that Sam's cup is empty. Slade politely offers to fill Sam's cup, but Sam, though he wants another cup, quickly and politely declines the offer. Says Sam, I was afraid he had not killed anybody that morning, and he might be needing diversion. Slade insists on filling Sam's cup. I thanked him and drank it, says Sam, but it gave me no comfort, for I could not feel sure that he would not be sorry presently that he had given it away and proceed to kill me to distract his thoughts from the loss. Because Orion Clemens, as the new Secretary of Nevada Territory, has to meet with territorial officials of Utah Territory, Sam gets to spend a couple of days in Salt Lake City. He's greatly impressed with the Mormon splendid city they have built from scratch, but not so much with the Book of Mormon. West of the great Salt Lake, the stagecoach rolls across a barren level plain before entering Nevada and coming to the Humboldt River. Here the travelers come upon a tribe of Shoshone Indians called Goshoot, Sam's not greatly impressed with the go-shoot, saying, They are very considerably inferior to even the despised digger Indians of California, and inferior to all races of savages on our continent. And those are the nicest things, he says about the go-shoot. On the 19th day, out from St. Joseph, Missouri, including the two-day layover in Salt Lake City, Sam Clemens finds himself in the waterless 40-mile desert, which lies between the Humboldt Sink and the Carson River in Nevada. As Sam Clemens describes it, the coach wheel sunk from six inches to a foot. We worked our passage most of the way across. That is to say, we got out and walked. It was a dreary pull and a long and thirsty one, for we had no water. From one extremity of this desert to the other, the road was white with the bones of oxen and horses. It would hardly be an exaggeration to say that we could have walked the 40 miles and set our feet on a bone at every step. The desert was one prodigious graveyard and the log chains, wagon tires, and rotting wrecks of vehicles were almost as thick as the bones. On the afternoon of the 20th day of the overland journey, the stagecoach rolls into Carson City, the capital of Nevada territory. Earlier known as Washoe, the area is in the midst of a boom because of two great strikes One at Virginia City, and the other at Aurora. Nevada Territory's first governor is James Nye. Before his appointment, he was an attorney in New York and a major general in the state militia. He was also very active in Republican politics in New York during the 1850s. He brings several of his old political allies with him to Nevada to fill various jobs. He also brings Bridget Murphy, a motherly, talented, energetic, and fearless proprietor of a boarding house in New York City. She sets up a boarding house in Carson City, and most of Nye's brigade moves into it, including Sam and Orion Clemens. They call the boarding house the ranch. While Nye is trying to place all those at the boarding house in official jobs, he keeps them busy with various make-work jobs including surveying a possible railroad route. On the survey job they run into tarantulas again and again and begin to take the big hairy spiders back to the boarding house keeping them under glass tumblers in a large dormitory-like bedroom. Sam Clemens hates the sight of them. Late one night a tremendous wind sends a portion of a roof slamming into the side of the boarding house. A shelf with a dozen tumbler-covered tarantulas crashes to the floor. Turn out, boys, yells one of the boarders. The tarantulas are loose. Sam Clemens describes the scene in the dark room. No warning ever sounded so dreadful. Nobody tried to leave the room lest they might step on a tarantula every man groped for a trunk or a bed and jumped on it then followed the strangest silence a silence of grisly suspense it was too waiting expectancy fear it was dark as pitch and one had to imagine the spectacle of those scant clad men roosting gingerly on trunks and beds San Clements doesn't say how long all the men remain frozen in place. But he does say different men at different times were certain a tarantula was crawling over them. And no one was willing to cross the floor to light a lantern. Suddenly, the door to the room swings open. And there's Mrs. Murphy with a lantern in her hand. She shakes her head in disgust and 14 grown men sheepishly climb down from their perches on boxes, trunks, and beds. During the next several months, Sam prospects for gold in various mining districts and tries to stake a claim on timberlands on the shores of Lake Tahoe. Early in 1862, Sam and several of his friends set off for Aurora, the newest strike in Nevada. With a slouch hat on his head, and high-top boots on his feet, wearing a woolen shirt and trousers, and armed with a Colt revolver, Sam looks the part of a prospector. He doesn't think he will have occasion to use the gun, but says he carries it in deference to popular sentiment, and in order that I might not, by its absence, be offensively conspicuous and a subject of remark. In Aurora, Sam begins writing professionally. Under the non plume Josh, he writes several pieces for the Esmeralda Star, one of the town's two daily newspapers. He also starts sending articles describing events in Aurora to the Territorial Enterprise in Virginia City, again as Josh. Sam does some mining but most of the time he's found in one or another of Aurora's many saloons sipping whiskey and telling stories he's a gifted storyteller and always has an audience meanwhile Cal Higby, Sam's trusty partner who has been prospecting from sunup to sundown strikes a vein of ore. that night the two men talk of the riches that await them says Sam. Higby and I went to bed at midnight, but it was only to lie broad awake and think, dream, scheme. The floorless, tumble-down cabin was a palace. The ragged gray blankets, silk. The furniture, rosewood and mahogany. Each new splendor that burst out of my visions of the future whirled me bodily over in bed, or jerked me to a sitting posture, just as if an electric battery had been applied to me. By a complicated series of events, Clemens and Higby lose the claim, and their dreams of becoming millionaires are dashed.
1: And you're listening to Roger McGrath tell the story of Samuel Clemens. And my goodness, at 13 years old, he watches in awe as another young man departs for gold rush territory. And why was he in awe? Well, Clemens said it best, for he had traveled. Most of us, he said, have never been 40 miles from home. And here is Sam Clemens traveling and seeing things, well, that he should see and not see. By the way, if you've read Huck Finn and loved it, do read Roughing It because it is as good as Ulysses S. Grant's memoir. It's that good. And if you haven't read Grant's memoir, pick it up. You won't put it down. You'll thank me. Let's continue with McGrath.
5: After six months in Aurora, Sam gives up on mining and leaves for Virginia City. In September 1862, Sam Clemens walks into the Territorial Enterprise Office, introduces himself to Irishman Dennis McCarthy, the co-owner and editor of the newspaper, and says, my name is Clemens and I've come to write for the paper. The Territorial Enterprise is Nevada's first and most important newspaper. By the early 1860s, it has supplanted the Sacramento Union as the Miner's Bible. The Enterprise wields enormous influence, not only in Virginia City, but throughout the West. It's read on every mining frontier. The paper is full of hard, factual news, but its reporters are allowed to indulge themselves on page three. They then become essayists, poets, philosophers, humorists. They pen stories about imaginary mining strikes or mining disasters or about anything that strikes their fancy. The co-owners and editors of the territorial enterprise, Dennis McCarthy and Joe Goodman, tell the writers they are free to write anything they want on page three, but they must take personal responsibility for any explosive reaction by the public. As a result of this policy, the newspaper becomes a training school for original and versatile writers. The one who achieves the greatest prominence and success is Sam Clemens, although it's by his new nom de plume, Mark Twain, that he gains fame. Sam takes the name from his river pilot days, when deckhands called out depth readings. Each mark is six feet or one fathom. Twain is two fathoms or 12 feet, the depth needed for safe passage of the typical steamboat. Sam first attaches the name to one of his Territorial Enterprise articles in February 1863. Sam's first of many tongue-in-cheek pieces with the Territorial Enterprise appears in October 1862 titled Petrified Man Sam describes the discovery of a man's body, perfectly petrified, that is put on display by a local politician in front of a crowd of onlookers. The petrified man's arms and hands are in a position suggesting he's thumbing his nose at the world, and one eye appears to be winking. Newspapers throughout the country get the story by way of the telegraph and reprint it as straight news. In reality, none of it's true, but it's Sam's way of poking fun at the politician and his gullible constituents. More such tall tales come from Sam's pen, but most of his work consists of solid factual reporting, especially on the territorial legislature in Carson City. He has a nose for sniffing out corruption and incompetence, and delights in exposing it in vitriolic prose. He makes friends, and he makes enemies. After several challenges to duels, he decides to take a permanent vacation. He arrives in San Francisco in May 1864 and spends money freely, certain that his mining stock will allow him many months of frivolity. However, his stock plunges, and he is forced to take a job with the San Francisco daily newspaper, The Morning Call. The work is hard and mostly routine, and he's not allowed his flights of fancy. After too many months of what Sam considers drudgery with The Call, the editor tells him he has literary talents beyond a simple reporting job and fires him. Sam now convinces the Territorial Enterprise that he should be the San Francisco correspondent for the newspaper. Sam's paid handsomely and again is allowed great latitude. This also allows him to remain in San Francisco and continue to be part of a literary circle of talented and aspiring young writers, who include Joaquin Miller and Bret Hart. Sam also makes trips to California's motherlode country. Staying in old mining camps with such colorful names as Jackass Hill, Angel's Camp, Rough and Ready, Red Dog, Gold Hill, and Fiddletown. Town. He meets many veteran sourdoughs from the gold rush of 1849 and is regaled with stories from the first days of the Great Strike. One of these tales is about a jumping frog. Sam sees the makings of a great story and takes notes. A few weeks later, Sam has the story written and sends it to a publisher in New York. What would become commonly known as the celebrated jumping frog of Calaveras County appears in November 1865 in the Saturday Press. It's an instant sensation and is reprinted in various publications across the United States Suddenly Mark Twain is a household name With his elevated status Sam convinces the Sacramento Union newspaper to send him to Hawaii as a correspondent He arrives in March 1866 and for the next four months sends stories about the islands to California one of his stories captures the attention of the entire nation Sam happens to be on the spot when survivors of a 43-day ordeal at sea in a lifeboat are brought ashore they are sailors from the ship Hornet which caught fire in the Pacific and sank when Sam returns home he finds himself in great demand managed by Dennis McCarthy his editor from the Territorial Enterprise days, Sam begins a lecture tour that takes him to not only sold out venues in San Francisco and Sacramento, but to packed venues in one mining camp after another in the motherlode country, and over the Sierra's to Carson City, Gold Hill, and Virginia City. He travels hundreds of miles in stagecoaches and is greeted as a celebrity at every stop. In the final days of his lecture tour, Sam has a practical joke played on him that he would have enjoyed immensely, were he not the victim of it. After lecturing to a standing-room-only crowd in Gold Hill, he and Dennis McCarthy began the two-mile walk back to their lodgings in Virginia City. About midnight, they reached the desolate hilltop divide between the two towns. Lying in wait for them are a group of old friends, masked and disguised. The order, stand and deliver, rings out, and a half dozen men with guns drawn descend on Clemens and McCarthy. The would-be robbers wave their revolvers in Sam's face. Says, Sam, don't flourish those pistols so promiscuously. They might go off by accident. Sam begins to reach in his pockets for his money, but is told to reach for the sky. As soon as he puts his hands up, he's told to pull out his money. This goes on for another round. Sam doesn't realize it's a joke, and exasperated, asks how he's supposed to get his money if he's reaching for the sky. By now the robbers are all about to burst out laughing, so they dig through Sam's pockets while he holds his hands high, pick up a satchel of silver coins, the proceeds from the night's lecture that McCarthy had been carrying, and hastily depart, telling Clemens and McCarthy to remain in position for 15 minutes with their hands high. None the wiser. Sam gets a story in The Next Day's Territorial Enterprise about the dastardly robbery by six highwaymen on the Divide. Later, he has all the money returned to him and learns it was all a practical joke. Sam is steamed and remains in high dudgeon until he leaves for San Francisco a couple of days later. Late in 1867, Sam Clemens decides it's time to return to the East. He soon marries and settles in Connecticut. His days in the Old West are over, but his time on the frontier created his writing style and gave him enough material for a lifetime of stories. Most Americans today know Mark Twain was once a steamboat pilot on the Mississippi. But most Americans know nothing of as many years of roughing it on the wild and woolly frontier.
1: And great job, as always, to Greg for producing that piece and to Roger McGrath. And again, Roger is the author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes, Violence on the Frontier, a former U.S. Marine, and, of course, a history professor at UCLA, one of the best there, one of the best history professors you'll ever come across And a special thanks to Roger for all the work he does with us. And my goodness, what audacity of this young Samuel Clemens. I've come to write for the newspaper. My name is Clemens. And he says this to the biggest newspaper, having never written for a newspaper before. And soon he's the dominant force and getting them to pay for gigs in San Francisco, Hawaii, and, well, frankly, anywhere he feels like it. The story of Samuel Clemens in the Old West, how he even got his name Mark Twain, and how he decided to use it. Those stories and so much more here on Our American Stories.